please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6 this evening. And if you are able, I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May be seated. Please pray with me. Gracious Father and Lord of all creation, we thank you that we have this wonderful privilege now to turn to your word. And we ask that by your grace, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to be able to scan the depths of your love for us. And we know that we can do nothing apart from you. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to work even now, tonight, in our hearts. That we may see nothing but Jesus and glorify your name. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to write a letter to a friend or maybe to a group of Christians or even maybe to a church to encourage or to challenge them. Maybe it's a friend that you're writing to encourage during a difficult time or maybe writing to spur them on to serving the Lord. But if you were to do that or if you have done that, I would be very interested to know What are some of the key things, what are some of the key foundations that you would speak to them of in order to encourage your friends or to spur your friends on to love and good works? What would be those foundational points that you would talk to them about? As we look tonight at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, And as we even scan the letters of the New Testament, we find this out, that one of the key truths that God would have His people to know, whatever the circumstances they're going through, that they have been chosen by Him. If you do a brief survey of the openings of the letters in the New Testament, one of the key truths that the writers will focus in on is God's having chosen His people. 
You see it here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Or Titus 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Or 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Or 2 John 1, the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. You see, it might not cross our minds to think that this truth would be of such importance that God would have His church know it at the outset of these letters. A church whom Peter writes to, scattered, going through persecution. It is the fact that they are elect exiles that God would have them know. Or the church of Ephesus, to remind them and to encourage them in the faith that they are indeed chosen by God. And as we look at this particular teaching here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, there are often times, and there may even be for yourself, different reactions to such a teaching. Some may respond with excitement if this is maybe new for them. They may immediately respond with excitement and the joy of seeing God's sovereignty on quite literally every page of Scripture. Maybe a different category of those who may respond in a bit of hostility even to such a thought that God chooses. But there's a third category even that oftentimes we find, and maybe even yourself this evening, of an apathetic attitude towards such a teaching. That such a foundational truth It may be true, but it really has no practical import for the life of the church. That's a teaching, that's a doctrine that those theologians can squabble about and write about. But it doesn't have any practical import. It is not a foundational consideration for the church. But what I want you to see, if anything else tonight, Wherever you are this evening, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, know this, that before the foundations of the world, God set His love upon you. And that foundational truth is of massive import to the life of the church. And so this evening, as we consider this truth, we're going to do so under four different headings. We're going to look at the what of election. Secondly, we're going to look at the who of election. Thirdly, the when of election. And fourthly, the why of election. I feel like I'm a news reporter or something, asking who, what, when, where, why. But four ways to look at this text. And we're going to hone specifically in on verse 4, but also five and six as well throughout the course of our time. So first, the what of election. What is this God what is this when we read that God has chosen us? 
Well, there are often, if you read and scan throughout Scripture, you'll find these different ways that God will refer to his choosing of people. There is theocratic election, the choice of the nation of Israel for his purposes. We read about this particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God has chosen Israel as a nation to serve his purposes. But we also find in Scripture that God often, he often will elect, he often will choose particular people to serve particular purposes in a particular office. You read about this even of the Lord Jesus himself in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. But while those do have bearing throughout Scripture this evening, Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 1 is not on theocratic election, not on God's election to office, but it is God's election unto salvation that Paul is emphasizing this evening for us in the text. But what is this? What do we mean when we speak about God's having chosen us? Well, it refers to God's sovereign choice of certain individuals to be the recipients of his grace. Not based upon anything in them, but based upon God alone. This is a sovereign, distinguishing choice. Distinguishing between one and another. It is also a gracious choice. And we even see that back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when God has chosen Israel. We see this as even a picture of God's even choosing of us. That it is not based upon Israel's size. It is not based upon Israel's history. But it is indeed because of God's own love for them. This choice, this sovereign choice, we have sometimes a hard time to grasp how it is that God is sovereign even over the choices which men and women make in life. And so many will often neglect that and say God is is sovereign. He is orchestrating all of history. But when it comes even to the choices of men and women, God is not sovereign over that. But simply the data of Revelation, the data of Scripture says that God is even sovereign over the king's heart. Proverbs tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he pleases. There are no actions. There are no events. There are even no choices which take place apart from God's ordination. As the Westminster Confession says, the whatsoever comes to pass. And that even includes the choices which men and women make on a daily basis. God, there is is no choice apart from the sphere of God's sovereignty. So that is what election is. That is what it means for God to choose us. It is a sovereign choice by His grace. Secondly, we see in verse 4a, again, if you look down, we see the who of election. Who are the objects of this election? Well, in verse 4, it is the us. It is the us of verse 4, whom Paul refers to as being the, the objects of God's sovereign choosing unto salvation. Now, 
what we can often do when we, we think about God's doings in history, God's works in history, is we can, we can see our own doings and then we can project onto God as though His doings are like ours. Remember, even over the summer when we were considering the very heart of God and His love for His people, we can so often think that God's love must simply be like ours, just maybe a little better. It's a matter of just quantity, greater quantity. But the Scriptures, even in terms of God's love, says that it is of a different quality. It is wholly other than the way we love. And so it is when God is choosing. Even the very choices He makes are, are wholly different than the choices we make. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but growing up, maybe you were uh, in, a, in a high school or middle school or elementary school, and you go out to the recess fields, and everybody wants to play a sport or a game of sorts. And two captains are selected, and then you know what happens. Those captains then select their team. But they select their team based upon the attributes of those they want on their team. Playing sports, you will choose generally the individual who may be athletic. Or if you're doing some sort of academia game sorts, you will choose the individuals who exhibit those characteristics the best. So we choose as humans, we choose based upon the characteristics of those we are choosing. And so what happens is we project that onto God and we think that God operates the same way as us in a fashion like humans, either with his eyes closed and simply arbitrarily selecting. Or we think that God chooses based upon the characteristics of the ones he chooses. So the question is, when God does this, when he chooses us in him before the foundations of the world, what lies behind the choice? What is it and why is it that God does such a thing? Many times we think about this and we think it must be because of something in man. And you'll hear oftentimes the God as the great deity who looks down, as it were, the tunnel of time. In eternity past, before the foundations of the world, you have God. And he looks, as it were, ahead in history and he sees men and women who respond positively to him and therefore, in eternity past, he chooses them. And while that may seem plausible in our own minds, it simply does not do justice to the text of Scripture. And if you have your Bibles, flip over with me to Romans chapter 9. We're not going to camp here all night, but we'll spend just a few moments. And the question again at hand is what lies behind, behind God's choice of his people? Romans chapter 9, a well-known passage, of course, to all of us. But again, reminding you of Paul's argument here in Romans 9 as he's dealing with the issues regarding the Jews and the Gentiles. How does this play out in history? And that is what Paul's main concern is in chapters 9 through 12. 9 through 11, excuse me. 
And he's speaking about matters pertaining to salvation. If you're in Romans 9, you see this in verse 3, beginning there at verse 3. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, the, the Israel, his kinsmen. He wishes he himself could be accursed. This is not simply matters to God's choosing Israel to be a nation, but matters pertaining pertaining to salvation. And then follow with me down to verse 11. Paul will now begin to use individuals from history to make his point that what lies behind this choosing of God lies not in man, but in God himself. Look at verse 11. Speaking concerning Jacob and Esau, who come from Rebekah, he says this, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. You see, what may seem logical to us, that God would choose those who respond positively to him as he sees them from eternity past, what we see from the scriptures is that the choice, the very reason behind the choice, lies not in man. You see it. Neither had they done good or bad. But why? The answer lies in the him who calls. Him who has chosen. And this is glorious news for the people who know this truth. For those who have come to Christ, this is glorious news. Because if you think about your own life, and by God's grace, He has opened your eyes to see the sin that lies in your own heart, and even maybe the past, you know there is no way in the world that in that sinful state you ever, ever would have come. What lies back is God and His love. And the only response to that truth, we'll sing about it in just a few minutes, is not, Lord, look what I've done, but Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands, thousands and millions and billions make the wretched choice to starve themselves than to come to the Lord Jesus? That is what lies back of your coming to Christ. It is God's love. He is the great initiator and the great consummator of your salvation and glory be to His name. Some may respond and say, well, how do I know? How do I know if this is true of me? How do I know if God has chosen me? You may even hear cynics of Christianity who know something of Scripture 
say something like this. Well, I, I simply know I, I am not a Christian I, because God has not chosen me. That's the response that they will give, maybe. But if you get anything else from this evening, hear this. The Scriptures do not ever treat salvation as coming to an understanding of whether you have been chosen. The warrant for faith is not whether or not you know that you've been chosen, but that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save that which is lost. That is the only warrant for faith. Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And we see this interplay even from Jesus' own lips. Again, if you do, feel free to turn over to Matthew 11 very, very briefly. Matthew 11, looking down at verse 25, and we'll just briefly read those few verses there. This interplay we find from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. But then here it is. Knowing full well that only those whom the Son chooses to reveal will ultimately come to Him. Do you see the warrant for faith? Verse 28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The warrant for coming to Christ is not knowing whether you've been chosen or not. The warrant for coming to Christ is because Christ has called you to come to Him. And so you may be sitting here this evening and you may not have come to Him. You may have heard this teaching in Ephesians chapter 1 and wonder, am I chosen? How do I know? That is simply not the first question at hand for you. The question at hand is, have you come to the Christ who offers Himself to you? And if so, you know full well but apart from that choice, you never would have come. Thirdly, go ahead and flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. We've seen already the what of election. Secondly, the who of election. Thirdly, the when of election. When does this choice take place? Well, we see it again in verse for even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Dear Hardest Voss, the former professor at Princeton Seminary who had a great influence on many of the founders of our own denomination, has this wonderful line that I have spent so long thinking about and still don't fully understand. So join me in that. But hear his quote. 
He says the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that God will not fail to keep loving us is because Voss recognized the love was from eternity. There was never a time when God's love was not set upon you. From eternity past, before the foundations of the world, for time-bound creatures, we're not even totally sure what that means, other than the fact is it wasn't part of this time and space. But that in eternity past, the love of God was set upon you. You ever doubt your faith? You ever doubt that you're going to be able to make it to the end? God's love will never cease for you because it never began. It always was. And it will never cease. Fourthly, and finally, the why of election. Why did God do what he did in choosing us before the foundations of the world? Well, this comes to play and to bear in the text in two different ways. First, verse 4b, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why, you may ask, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This language of holy and blameless may even jog your memory back to the Old Testament. And you have these, you have these animal sacrifices. And you constantly get the repetition throughout Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that the sacrifices must be holy and blameless and without spot. And so it is for believers who have come to faith in the Lamb of God, who was indeed spotless. We know that we too follow in a pattern of holiness and sanctification. And this language of being set apart, being holy and blameless, is a truth that we already claim by coming to faith in Christ. Paul in Romans 6 speaks about the fact that you have already died to sin, a once-for-all, as John Murray puts it, a once-for-all definitive breach with the realm of sin when you come to faith in Jesus. You have been moved, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His marvelous light. It's a movement of worlds from the world of sin under which you're bound to the world of Christ's reign. You think about even fighting in a battle, for example. You start your Christian walk under the bondage and the enslavement of Satan fighting for him against God. And when you have placed your faith in Christ, when you believed upon Him, when the Holy Spirit did a mighty work in your heart, you were moved from that fighting on that side. You were moved now to the other side. And though the fight still remains, you are on the other side, fighting not against the Lord, but now with the Lord in His army. But the fight still remains. 
And so to say, well, God has simply chosen me, therefore I don't have to do anything, is to fail to come to terms with this text and the whole of Scripture. Paul in Romans chapter 8 puts it this way. For those whom God foreknew, he also, pre, he also predestined, why, you may ask, to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, God did not save you. God did not choose you because you were holy, but in order to make you holy. Faith and good works are not the root of election. They are the fruit of election. St. Augustine puts it this way, a, well, a wheel does not run well in order to become round. But it runs well because it is round. A wheel does not run well in order to become round, but, be, but it runs well because it is round. And so it is for the Christian. You are not chosen because you were holy, but you were chosen in order to be holy. Without holiness, the author of Hebrews puts it, you will not see the Lord. And so it is of utmost importance. It is of utmost concern to the church of Jesus Christ that we stress the holiness that is demanded by the very fact that we've been chosen. And not a hands-off, laissez-faire type attitude towards Christian living. But what about when you don't feel like it? What about when you don't feel holy? You don't feel as though you are being daily setting apart. Well, here again, the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. God began the work and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And secondly, under our final heading here, under the why of election, we see in verses 5 and down to 6, the second, and we may even say the ultimate end in view, is, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. The glory of God is that grand recurring theme, that great heartbeat of Scripture, that all that God does, the whatsoever He ordains, is for ultimately the purpose of His own glory. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. All that God does, all that God does in history and in His providential workings is not only for our good and therefore for our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is also for His glory. Sinclair Ferguson has this amazing little way of, he always has a wonderful way of doing this, but he has this little twist on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, uh, which many of us know. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, Ferguson says there could also be question 1B. What is God's chief end? 
God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is why God does all that He does. And that is why we do all that we do for the glory of Himself. And it is God, the triune God, who is full of love and it is bountiful and it is pouring out to the other members of the Trinity and then beyond to His creatures. It is always this constant giving that we see even the Lord Himself in the glorification of Himself is still yet bountiful to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The truth about God's electing purposes is not to raise man up. Any doctrine, any teaching that raises man higher than God is simply wrong, friends. Our doctrine from Scripture always elevates not man, but God. This, this is what drives Paul. Remember at the end of his excursus on talking about Israel in 9-11 through 11 of Romans. He gets to the end and he, he is just filled with, with praise to the Lord. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And if that is not what comes from tonight and from our readings of Scripture about God's sovereignty, then we have not fully grasped it. If our doctrine, if our theology concerning God's work does not lead us to glorify Him, to speak of Him, to long to sing of Him and His glory. If it does not humble us, then we have yet failed to understand this text, and we must return until the Spirit grants us this humility. And so, as we finish, we think about these great truths, these foundational truths that God would have His church to know that they have been chosen. They've been chosen not because of anything in them, not because of anything that they would do, but because of the love of God for them. And ultimately, leading us to the praise of the name of the Lord. What a God we serve! What a glorious truth. May we go from here striving to serve Him wherever He has called us. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, how filled with joy we are at this wonderful truth that in eternity past You, O Lord, set Your love upon us that You have called us to Yourself in time and in history, not because of anything in us, O Lord, but because of Your sovereign orchestration. And so, Father, we are so thankful. We are filled with joy. And now we ask, O Holy Spirit, continue now as we finish 
our time of worship, turn our eyes upon the living and true God. We pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.